Hey, thanks for joining us here at the Vineyard Church Podcast. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. There's a lot of great resources there that are free and will help you grow closer to God and help you connect with the church. Right now, let's go to our lead pastor, Chris Figueretti, for this week's message. Well, hello and welcome, everyone. We're going to continue in the book of Mark today. So if you brought your Bible, open up to Mark chapter 7, and we're going to begin in verse 14. If you're new with us, we are traveling through the book of Mark and looking at the life of Jesus. And uh, today we're going to see Jesus interact with some religious leaders and then interact with somebody who is the furthest thing from being a religious leader. Uh, And so every week I encourage you to bring a Bible, either a paper Bible or you can download a Bible on your phone and read along because I'm going to point us continually to God's word as our authority and that's where we want to look. And, uh, And if you're along for the ride on this, at some point pick up a paper Bible because you can write in the margins and God's going to show you things and speak things to you and you're going to see things you've never seen before and you're going to have a record right there in the margins of your Bible of what you're learning along the way. That's, that's a treasure in this life, and that's something that you can carry with you from here on out. So I want to encourage you to do that. Um, last week, we, f- we found Jesus in a conflict with the religious leaders. Now, Jesus, this is the second time in the book of Mark that the religious authorities in Jerusalem, this is headquarters, right? They sent down a delegation to find out what this Jesus guy is all about. They've heard rumors of his teachings. They've heard rumors of miracles that he was doing. And they need to know what's going on because some of his teachings and some of what he is doing is challenging their power. So they send this delegation down. Last week, we see Jesus and the religious leaders kind of going head to head uh, and in a conflict about the rules. Uh, and in, in verse uh, 8, which so this is just kind of a review catch up from last week, chapter 7, verse 8, Jesus says this, you've let go of the commands of God and you're holding on to human traditions. And what they had done is they had taken God's commands, which they would find in what we call the first five books of the Old Testament, um, they would have called um, the Torah. This is what they, this was the law that God had given to Moses, and uh, but they then had all this oral tradition around it, and all these other rules that they piled on, and they had other books. They had the Talmud and the Mishnah, and 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 so many rules and so many traditions that nobody could keep up with it all. And Jesus is like, look, you've elevated your traditions and and the commands that you've come up with, and and you're keeping people from God. You've lost the heart of God, and you've elevated your rules and your power over the welfare of the people you're supposed to be helping connect with God. And Jesus was having none of it. And that's where we saw him last week. This week, this conversation continues and he dives into the dietary laws. And this is a big deal because this is not necessarily just traditions. These are things that are in the law of Moses. And in verse 14, it says this, it says, again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me. Everyone, listen to me, everyone, and understand this, nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person 
that defiles them. Now, Jesus is talking about food here, and the Jewish people have a lot of laws that govern their diet. We call it the kosher diet, right? And they don't eat pork, they don't eat shellfish, they don't eat certain foods mixed together. Animals have to be butchered and executed a certain way, and, and a lot of rules and laws that govern all of that. And this is an explosive statement. Jesus, uh, we see taking on personal purity laws. Now he's taking on dietary laws that have been in place for over 1,400 years. They've been following these. And of course, they have all their extra rules around this that they've come up with as well. And what Jesus is saying is, guys, you don't get it. You're, you're, you're so consumed with the rules that you're ignoring your heart. More importantly, you're ignoring God's heart. And God's heart is for what's going on in your heart. He gave the people of Israel these distinctives to follow, to set them apart from the pagan world around them. But they began over time to worship these distinctives and lost God in the process. Now, Jesus says, look, I, we, we hear him say these exact words, I've come to fulfill the law or the old covenant. God, God's law was part of the covenant that he made with the people of Israel. And, and, and Jesus said, I've come to fulfill that. And the way that he fulfilled that, part of that law was, was the sacrificial system. They could sacrifice animals for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus ultimately, when he's crucified on the cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, was fulfilled that old covenant and he inaugurated a new covenant that wasn't based on rules but was based on a relationship with God was based on the grace of God and based on our hearts being right with God now as we talked about last week and I encourage you to go back and watch last week there are still rules there are still things that God says are right and wrong and so we're not throwing all of that out it's just not all this stuff that the Jewish people had they began to worship the distinctives and they lost God in the process well at any rate Jesus Jesus is going after that old covenant here. I mean, he, he, he is beginning the process here. Now, in verse 17, he says this, after he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. He said, are you so dull? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. This is a radical statement for them because their dietary law was kind of central to their covenant. It was central to them as a people. It was their identity. It was all of this. And Jesus is basically saying, look, God is concerned. All the rules have cluttered, the, cluttered your minds and your hearts. This is about what's in here and food doesn't go in here. He's clearly talking about food, by the way. I just need to say that as well. He's not talking about like what content that we, we consume. Like you can't sit around and watch porn. That does go to your heart and jack it up. But food, it, it, it goes into our bodies and it comes out of our bodies. And so what he's saying is like, look, you know, pork ribs don't go to your heart. They go to your butt. No, I mean, he didn't say that. They don't go to your heart. They go into your stomach and out and into the ground. Now, 
I have to say, recently, a couple weeks ago, I purchased one of these uh, pellet smokers. Have anybody experienced the, the pellet smoker? These are incredible. Uh, and so I have made some pulled pork and some pork ribs and some other things. And I have to say, probably a little bit of it has gone to my heart because it was that good. I mean, it is ridiculously delicious. But generally speaking, it goes into our stomachs and out and clogs our septic system, which happened to me this week as well. And I'm blaming it on the pork. Um, <clears throat> so, but it does not affect our hearts. And God is all about What's going on in here? He goes on. He, he says, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's what? Of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside and defile a person. And we know this, Jesus taught this, they, they come from in here, they start in here, they eventually will come out in our behavior as well. And God is way more concerned with that than he is whether we eat a ceremonially clean food or not. <clears throat> Jesus is saying to these religious people, he's in a, really in an argument with them, your man-made rules and traditions are keeping you from the heart of God. You can't be a malicious person but say, well, I don't eat pork rinds, so I'm good with God, you know, or uh, you can't be a greedy person and say, well, I wash my hands when I come home from the market, so, you know, God's got to be good with me on that, or, or you can't be a person who's consumed with lust and say, yeah, but, I, you know, I keep the Sabbath, or be a deceitful person and uh, in, in the way that you do business and go, well, but I tithe, I give to God, so he's got to forgive me, right? Or you can't say, you can't be an arrogant son of a gun. I say son of a gun because it's church. You can't be an arrogant SOB and say, well, yeah, but I, I sit in church on Sunday. So God's looking at the things that I'm supposed to do and ignoring the things that I'm doing or the things that are inside of me because I'm following these external rules. And that's really at the heart of this issue. They were so focused on all these external rules and keeping them that thinking that God was more concerned with that when really God was concerned with what was going on in here. And Jesus is saying, look, guys, you've missed the point and you're missing God. You're so wrapped up in being right that you can no longer see what is righteous. You can't see what is right. Now, spoiler alert for all of us, guys, we all have stuff in our hearts that make us unclean. There's not one of us that is righteous in here. We all wrestle with the things that Jesus listed in that passage. One, one of them, maybe several of them. All of us are sinners. And it is only by the grace of God, it is only by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross that we are forgiven. And it is by his presence his spirit coming and living in our heart that we can begin to deal with those heart issues and he can begin to rewire us from the inside out and begin to restore our lives and make something beautiful out of them. Now, that being said, I want to be very clear on something. There's nothing wrong with having high standards for ourselves. There's nothing wrong with saying, you know, the scripture, the scripture says this, 
But I'm going to do this. I'm going to set this extra barrier because I know this is a weak spot for me. And, and, and my family, we're going to live this way, right? The problem is when I make my high standard your high standard. The problem comes when it's not just good for me. It's what God wants for everyone. Example, I, I touched on this last week. I know a lot of people who don't drink alcohol and choose not to because it's a problem for them. If they drink, they will drink too much, or they will drink every night, or they will, um, <clears throat> or they can't stop. And so for them, it is wise not to drink alcohol, and they choose not to drink alcohol. And I encourage them in that. And if you have a problem, I encourage you in that. The problem is, is when they decide that that's what God wants for everyone, because God never said that's what he wants for everyone. It's fine to have a high standard, um, but when we make it a new standard for being a Christian, we got a problem. You know, Christians have done this over the years. They've decided that, you know, movies, you know, movies for, for a while were a big deal in, in, in Christian, some Christian circles. Like, you know, well, movies have worldly values, and so we don't want to be influenced by that, so you can't be a Christian and watch movies. Well, if you have that standard for your family, that's great, or for you, that's great. Dancing, you know, you can't dance and be a Christian because dancing, as we talked about last week, leads to what? Fornication, yeah, good times. Um, and so, you know, we can't, we can't dance and be a Christian or dress modestly, right? Now, there is a biblical principle about being modest, being humble, dressing modestly. And so what does that mean? Well, dressing modestly in some Christian circles would be, well, ladies have to wear skirts down to their ankles. And then that becomes, the, that becomes the kind of the point of contention. Like, well, what is modest? Is it below the ankle or above the ankle? Is it down to the knee? Is it below the knee, above the knee? How far above the knee can you go and still be modest? And whatever that decision is, that's what it is. You know, people project that on everybody, and that's what God says. And I got a Bible verse for it. One of my favorites is the Amish. Uh, you know, one of the things that the Amish are known for is the men will grow beards, but they won't sh they'll shave their upper lip. Do you know why they shave their upper lip? They had a great reason for this back in the day. When the Amish were getting started, um, at that point in history, mustaches were considered gauche and... Um, and, and very uh, prideful, and people had these big handlebar mustaches, and they were very, you know, almost like, you know, Casanova type, you know, players would have mustaches, and, and you wouldn't, and, and, and they're like, well, that's not modest, and that's not what God would have for us, so we're going to shave our upper lip so that nobody could confuse the fact that we are, you know, that we would be that way. We're not going to be that way. So now, 100, 150 years later, mustaches don't mean anything like that. They're still shaving their upper lip, and that's what the religious leaders were doing too. I mean, over time, it just becomes this thing that we do to, in order to be a Christian. One of the things that I see today, I'll see Christians battle over like, well, you can't watch Lord of the Rings. You know, uh, Tolkien, you can't, can't read Tolkien because he, he writes about wizards and, and, and spells and those, or, or Harry Potter. You know, I know some Christians who will, will go camp out to be the first one in to see the latest Harry Potter movie and others who are like, you can't be a Christian and read Harry Potter because, well, it, he writes about, you know, witches and, and, and all that. And like, you know what? 
First of all, Tolkien was a Christian. But if that's your conviction, go for it. But don't put that conviction on other people. You know, it, it, for, for me, my, my kids, um, they're allowed to date when they're 30. And after they're married, they can date their spouse. That's it. That's it. That, that's the standard that I, I have for them, right? Uh, not, I know other parents who drive their kids around when they're in the sixth grade to go on dates to the movies or wherever, the arcade or, or whatever. Well, I, there's nowhere in the Bible that I can see that I, 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 that's my standard, and it's not really my standard. But, but I'm not going to tell you you can't be a Christian unless you, you know, I'm just not. You know, in, in our family, after looking at our, one of our high standards, after looking at the data and the, the psychological studies of cell phone impact, we decided kids, our kids don't get a cell phone until they're 13, and they don't get social media until they're 16, and that's very reluctant. Um, because of the emotional and social and developmental impact, of, that's not in the Bible. I can't tell you you can't give your kid a phone when they're five. I, I, I can encourage you to read, read what I read, but it's not a salvation issue. It's not a requirement to be a Jesus follower, is it? And I'm not going to tell you that you're wrong. See, when my high standards become my projection on you for what you should live to be a good Christian, we got a problem if it's something outside of Scripture. But Jesus, you know, he's got this issue with, we see the last week with the hand washing. And they have a verse for this. And actually all of these things, you could come up with a verse to back up just about anything. You know, the Jews had a, a hand washing verse. It was Exodus 30, 17 and through 20, or through 21. It says, and it basically says when the high priest goes into the tabernacle where the ark of God is, where the presence of God is, he must wash his hands and feet. So... Shouldn't we all want to be near the presence of God? Shouldn't we all want to love God? And to love God, we're going to need to wash our hands and feet so we could be near the presence of God. And, and I got a verse for it. It's Exodus 30, 17 through 20. It wasn't. But that's what happens with all of this. And here's the danger. We get so focused on the rules that we miss the heart of God. And Jesus, I think, in this passage, demonstrates the heart of God in a way that he just makes it crystal clear. This is what God is about. See, he blows by laws of clean and unclean, ceremonial cleanliness. He touches the leper, illegal. He touches the dead girl and raises her from the dead, illegal. He lets the woman with the bleeding issue, touch him and be healed, unclean. He's constantly going to places he shouldn't go, like Samaria and the Decapolis and Caesarea Philippi and Tyre and Sidon, and, and, and where there are unclean people, where he is going to become ceremonially unclean just by being there and interacting with the people that are there. He's constantly breaking laws of religious purity. And some of us really have a problem with this. He can't do that, but he does. Why? I think he does it to demonstrate the heart of God, which is love and compassion for people. Guys, 
If your religion and your rules are keeping you from love and compassion for people, it's not Christianity. Because Jesus demonstrates this over and over again. And in case you don't know, Christianity is named after him. In verse 24, we see Jesus do something that I think is just brilliant. I think Jesus is, is again, painting the contrast between what God is frustrated with and what God is looking for. And in verse 24, it says, Jesus left that place and he went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. All right, Jesus is in this argument with these religious people and they're missing it, and they're missing him, and they're missing God in their presence, and they're missing all of it because they think they are righteous, and they've got all the rules nailed down, and they're the arbiters of what's right and wrong, and he is wrong, and they're missing him, and their pride is blinding them to the fact that God is in their midst. And he turns, and he walks away, and he goes to a place, Tyre, that no good Jew would go to, It is a place that is unclean. It is a Roman city. It is a pagan city. The rest of the crowd probably wouldn't, maybe his disciples went with him. The rest of the crowd and the religious leaders from that delegation from Jerusalem, they're definitely not going. They don't go there. It's one of the darkest places a Hebrew could imagine. If you remember from the Old Testament, um, there was one of the evil kings of, of Israel's past was King Ahab, and he married a woman, maybe you've heard of her before, her name is Jezebel. She was evil, and she was from this region of Tyre and Sidon. And, and they would have been thinking to themselves, he's going to them? He's going to them? What? He walks away from the most religious people there, and he goes to this place. It says in verse 25, in fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek. In other words, she was a Gentile, a non-Jew. She was born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. This woman was so disqualified from being anywhere near Jesus because of where she lived, because of her, where she was from, because of the fact that she was a woman, because she had a daughter possessed by an evil spirit. She clearly didn't have a husband because this would have been the husband's role to come and ask for this help. But she was like, well, he's not here. I'm going to do it. So she didn't have a husband, but I'm sure she had some men in her life, if you know what I mean. She was as unclean as she ceremonially by Jewish standards as unclean as anybody they could imagine. And she comes and she begs Jesus to set her daughter free. And Jesus says something that might be confusing at first. He says, first let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to dogs. And what Jesus is saying here, the Jews and the non-Jews, or the Gentiles, uh, called each other dogs. Jews would call them Gentile dogs. The, the Gentiles would call them Jewish dogs. They just did not get along. It was not a, you know, this, this, uh, this um, animosity 
is ancient. But that's what he's saying. Now, now Jesus refers to, he uses the, the word for dog that's, that's more like puppy, but I don't know that that softens this at all. I mean, it's, it's just, he calls her dog, basically, and says, this is for the, the you know, I'm here for the children of Israel, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. She replies in verse 28, Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. I'm just asking for a crumb. You know, we've been talking about bread for, for weeks now. Jesus multiplies the bread and feeds the, the multitude, and the disciples don't get the meaning of that, and the religious people don't get the meaning of it, but it seems like this woman who's completely disqualified in another culture 40 miles away, finally somebody gets the bread. Just a crumb, though. I just need a crumb. That's all. Would you heal my daughter? I'm just asking for the crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed, and the demon gone. Now, real quickly, I want you to flip back to the book of Matthew in chapter 15. Matthew gives us a, a little more insight into this this particular event. He writes about it as well, and he just kind of rounds out our understanding a little bit. In verse 21, he says this, leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Now, this is interesting. Jesus did not answer a word. Ignored her completely ignored her so his disciples came to him and urged him send her away for she she keeps crying out after us so she's becoming a problem she's not going away she is leaning in she is knocking on the door she is kicking down the door she is like i'm not going away until he gives me what i want she is a she is now a nuisance and the disciples are like will you send her away she's distracting she's been following for a while and in verse 24 he answered i was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, it's interesting that Jesus says this because we do see him go to Samaria. We do see him go to the Decapolis. These are all non-Jewish territories. We see him go to Caesarea Philippi. We see him go now to Tyre and Sidon. So Jesus, but, but he was sent to Israel. That was his mission Field. It was going to start with Israel, and clearly he, he outlines, and it is going to spread to the Gentiles and to the whole world, but it's here for Israel first. And, and the Apostle Paul really reflects this sentiment in uh, Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 when he says that the gospel was first for the Gentiles, or first for the Jews, and then for the Gentiles. It wasn't that the Gentiles were left out. It just wasn't time for the Gentiles yet. And so, He's like, I was sent for the lost sheep of Israel. Well, it says in verse 25 that the woman then came and knelt before him. She's about to change his mind. She comes and kneels before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. This is what we read in Mark's account. I love how she answers in Matthew's account. Yes, it is. Yes, it is, Lord. She's arguing with Jesus now. I love that. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from under the master's table. And then Jesus said to her, woman, 
you have great faith. Your request is granted, and her daughter was healed at that moment. This interaction with Jesus between this woman who is disqualified for all, all the legalistic, rules-based reasons that the Jews would say she, she could never get to God is having an argument with Jesus, a humble argument, but an argument with Jesus, an interaction with him, an interplay that gets down to, to a situation that changes her world forever. Guys, this is the only healing in the book of Mark that happens from a distance. Now, Matthew and Luke talk about the, the centurion servant that was healed from a distance, but in Mark, this is it. This is the only one, this woman who's disqualified. It's interesting that the centurion would have been disqualified too because he would have been a Roman. But those happened at a distance. Interesting. And it's the only time in the book of Mark that someone calls Jesus Kairos, Lord, Master, or it's the first time anyway. Lord, she replied, it says in verse 28. She gets him. She knows who he is. In a situation where the disciples still aren't clear, where the, the religious world is stacked against him, this woman, this broken woman, gets Jesus. And Jesus leaves the children of Israel. He leaves the religion of Israel. He leaves the people of Israel. And he goes to the darkest area that they could imagine by Jewish purity laws. And he is hanging out with a woman who, by all accounts, is questionable at best. And she's pestering him and even arguing with him. And yet, for the first time, someone recognizes him for who he really is. And it's her. She gets it. She gets it. And I do find it interesting that Jesus kind of sets up obstacles for her. He calls her a dog. He, he ignores her for a while. And she keeps leaning in. She keeps coming back. And I think he does that to build her faith. And I think he does that for her, for her, for her. And I think he does the same thing with us. He does it with his disciples for sure. He sends them into storms. He puts them in situations where they'll fail to build their faith, to, to strengthen their perseverance, which they'll need later on. And he does it with us as well. He allows us to go through storms, to build faith, and to produce humility in us. Jesus shows a lack of compassion in this passage that, you know, we don't see it anywhere else in the book of Mark. But I think there was a purpose to it. He was, he was doing it for her, and he was doing it because he wanted his followers to see. And he wanted us to see what he was looking for. And it wasn't the puffed up prideful religion of the religious leaders. He was looking for someone who would say, I'm not here because I'm good, because I'm anything but good. But I'm here because you're God, and you're good. 
He was looking for someone who would not be offended by his words, who would not be offended because he said, you're a sinner, but would recognize, yes, I am, and I'm broken. Someone who would humble themselves and fall before him, kneel before him and call him Lord. See, Jesus isn't looking for puffed up people. He's looking for humble people who know they need a savior. And the religious leaders didn't. And she gets him. She gets him. She calls him Lord. Why? Because it comes from her brokenness. Guys, we try to get ourselves all unbroken before we come to Jesus. We think we can't come into church until we get our act together. We can't come to Jesus until I, I clean my act up a little bit and, and, and drop some bad habits and do some other things. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. That's the religion of the Pharisees. He wants us to come with our brokenness. He wants us to admit, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. And then he takes all those broken pieces and he puts them back together into something more beautiful than we could ever create. And he heals our hearts and he heals our lives and he begins to rewire our hearts from the inside out so that those things that are in there that we all deal with begin to go away over time. This situation with Jesus and the religious leaders and then this 40-mile this journey over to to Sidon, um, or Tyr and Sidon, it's a seismic moment. It's a seismic moment. I mean, Jesus starts taking on their dietary law. You can't unravel the dietary law unless you wrote it. And you can't offer salvation to Gentiles unless you're the Savior, not just of Israel, but of the whole world. And Jesus drops the microphone and walks off the stage in the middle of an argument of what is clean and unclean. He walks 40 miles in the other direction to show the kind of heart God is looking for. Not legalistic, not self-righteous, not prideful, but broken and humble and in need of a savior. in the most unlikely of places with a possessed girl and a broken woman who has more strikes against her than anybody you can imagine according to the Jewish laws. He wants everybody to know this is who the good news is for. This is why I have come. And the question today for us is how does this apply to us where we live? And the answer is, we're a prideful culture. We're a prideful culture. We try to fit Jesus into our lives and into our comfort and our prosperity. We use him as a tool to leverage our comfort and our prosperity. And all along, he's just looking for the heart that is humble and broken, who's not offended when he says, you're a sinner, who can say, yes, I am. And I need a savior. And you're him. You're the Lord. And guys, there's two groups of people. There's probably more than two, but I can think of two who are watching this message. And the one is the group of people who you've never come to Jesus and said, I'm a sinner and I need saving. And you're the Lord. 
And I want to invite you to do that today. Today's your day. Put your pride aside. You need Jesus. The other are those of us that have fallen in love with our own rules. And when we do that, our hearts grow hard and we lose touch with what's going on in here. And we are blinded to the fact that we are sinners in need of a savior, just like the religious leaders. And I wanna invite you to open your heart and open your mind and have a conversation with God, asking him to blow open your heart to what he's doing and what he wants to do in you today. I'm going to pray, and I want you to just take a moment while I'm praying to do business with God. Jesus, would you give us the eyes to see? Would you give us the, the attitude of heart to humble ourselves, to, to not be more religious than you are, God, but to, to have a heart that is full of compassion and love for other people, have a heart that knows that we live on your grace, not our own righteousness, Lord. Our righteousness is filthy rags. Your righteousness is what makes us righteous. I pray for those who need to surrender their life to you today for the first time, that they will, and they will choose to follow you all the days of their lives. Lord, and I pray for those of us that where religion and, and um, rules-based religion has crept into our hearts and, and numbed our hearts or blinded us to our own pride. And I pray, God, that you would strip that away from us, that we would never forget that we're just sinners in need of a Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for joining us here at The Vineyard. It's our greatest desire to see you find and follow God, and we hope that this podcast has helped you do just that. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. Again, thanks for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.